Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. What is up? Welcome to episode 199. Thanks so much for listening. It means so much to me. If I brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook. Let me know what you want to hear more of and please be sure to share the podcast. I'm truly grateful for your support. Thank you. You can learn all the skills in the world, math, business, writing, but the right mindset will always trump them all. It's the great unlock to all other skills. Success and happiness come down to one single component, and that's mindset. In order to achieve our goals in life, our mindset needs to match those aspirations. And this is exactly what I pack into my free weekly newsletter. As a free subscriber, you receive the Mastering Your Mindset newsletter once per week, where I break down step-by-step processes to master your mindset and practical growth tips. If you haven't subscribed, but you enjoy the content I drop on this podcast, then you're missing out. Click the link in the show notes to subscribe for free to the Mastering Your Mindset newsletter some exciting news. I just launched my new website, scottmlynch.com. I wanted to create one central hub where each of you could easily navigate my offerings, especially given that I now offer multiple ways to refine your mindset. We've put a lot of work into this, and I'm excited to finally share this with each of you. It's gone through a major visual overhaul, and we've added some exciting features. You'll be able to book a one-on-one session directly through the website, sign up for my free weekly newsletter, explore some motivational merch that I'll be launching, and the most exciting part that I've been quietly keeping under wraps, I'll be launching a course later this year, and you'll be able to access this through my website as well. More details to come. Today, we have another special guest that joins the podcast, author Addison Brazil. Addison is no stranger to loss. He spent 13 years in the grief club arena. He lost his brother to cancer, found his father after suicide, and survived a fatal accident that killed a dear friend and left him relearning to walk. And yet still, when friends or family experienced loss, he would freeze. Not wanting to send flowers, empty condolences, or food, when he knew the realities of grief are so much more. And out of this came his book, First Year of Grief Club, a gift from a friend who gets it. Now a bestseller on Amazon. An alternative to the usual gifts and condolences that will stay with those grieving for the first year of the journey and beyond. He attributes his ability to not only survive, but thrive with PTSD and compounded grief to the presence and proliferation of community and connections in his life. Addison and I dive into his journey, how recovery became his full-time job, navigating grief, how that's an everyday process, and why we need to actually honor that grief, mental health, brain mapping, and much, much more. I hope you all 
enjoy our conversation. A quick content warning. This episode contains discussion of death and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts and need support, please call 800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. I thank you for what you're doing because mental health is starting to become a conversation. I think it still has a long way to go, um, mm-hmm. but I think we're on the right path. Absolutely. And yeah, it's it's so interesting. So much came up there, uh, obviously, for me. Um, and whenever Shelly or anyone from my Baja family kind of says, oh, you two need to talk. I just know that like there'll be magic there. And I, I can already see that, you know, you, it's the same sort of, system of what keeps you up at night and as the awareness downloads to a certain point you get to a point where you feel the need to take action and Mm. to include other people in that action and kind of find the people that it resonates with and and elevate them and like I just I think that's where all the magic happens you know when we get to a point where especially in mental health or in grief where you know there's only so far I find that awareness can go. I kind of yell this from the rooftops. Like there's only so much mental health awareness before people need actionable tools. And I don't know if it will be in in the intro or not, but for those listening, um, you know, I'm no stranger to grief myself and especially um, as the result of suicide. Um, But to give people an idea, I am in my twenties. I, I lost my brother to cancer. Um, and then I found my father four years after from suicide and that resulted in a lot of the same things that, that you were just talking about for me. And, and there was really this process of having to come to alignment and even come to, like you were saying, a willingness of like any sort of acceptance, you know, my brain sort of did every trick possible for that just to not be the truth. Um, and it's so weird because the worst thing that has you know, one of the two worst things that's ever happened to me or I've ever witnessed is obviously, you know, finding my father after a suicide. And I'm sure we'll put a trigger warning on the notes for this one. Um, But also, if I hadn't, I don't know that I would truly ever have believed it. Um, 
because, you know, like you were saying, I really had a front row seat at that point in my dad's life, probably the closest person to him for the last six months of his life. And although in the last few weeks, I was aware that there was something to be concerned about, I never knew that it would get to that point and that quickly. And even with setting up check-ins and and just trying to be as involved in process while respecting sort of his his manhood and his mental health, which again, this remember is 10 years ago. So we're not having conversations like this as often and there aren't apps and there, you know, it's not being, you know, proclaimed from the NFL and the other major leagues how important mental health is at that time, you know, so it was something that wasn't spoken about um, as much. So, so kind of as a son trying to respect that boundary, I still, you know, really had no idea. I had a sense, but I, I had no idea until, you know, there was no way to refute that that was what was happening. Um, and then as far as grief goes, obviously, it went on from there to kind of really try to make sense of the world. And, you know, a lot of my work and where I've got to points to the fact that after my brother and my father, I kind of went out and tried to fix my grief and fix my mental health. And I looked for every possible thing that I could do to fix it. And I think I even convinced myself that I had uh, around, I guess it was almost five years later uh, in 2018, you know, people really noticed a shift in me. I had sort of started to really work with my mentor, Jennifer Merrifield at the time, who's a mindset coach. And, you know, so much of what you record and what you do aligns so much and gave me the gifts back in my life at that time. Um, but yeah, I really thought I had, I, I'd fixed it and we could put it away and, you know, and it would just be something that like, you know, didn't come up anymore. And in that, in that vein, I, I actually went out to celebrate with a friend, like, you know, things were going well. And on the way home, I was in a very bad accident that, um, that killed my friend and uh, left me relearning to walk, hospitalized with a brain injury and really just having to make sense of the world again. And for the first time in my life, dealing with very complex, three different compounded grief processes, the mental health that came with the accident, but also being in constant physical pain. Um, And it just sort of became this recipe um, for suicidality eventually, you know, it, it, you know, it, my mental health and my recovery became my full-time job. And I would say that became the part-time job of those around me if they wanted me to, you know, be here. Um, So it's come a long way from them. But what I learned in that process, you know, with the grief and making sense of everything that had happened and what's led to the book, which I'm sure I'll talk about, is this idea of this really isn't something you fix. It's something you honor. It's something you have a relationship with every day. And based on how you're feeling each day, that's how you make decisions, you take action and work you know, within your own mindset as to what's possible within any given day. Um, I think a lot of people, we like put our grief away or we approach it with the idea that there will be a result of fixing it or that it will go away if we work on it. And the sort of muddy truth that I try to bring to the world in my messaging is that the sooner we can get to a place where we're realizing it's an honoring, that it's a process, that there's no result. Grief club starts the day it starts and it ends never. You know, I hate to be the guy that tells you that, but the sooner you get to that place and you can find some sort of, I don't want to put any emotions on anyone, but balance, joy, calm, you know, even an honoring of all the the harder emotions that come with that process, the sooner you can 
be a part of the process and acknowledge the process, I feel like that's when there's the, you know, the door opens just a little bit for there to be joy, gratitude, awe, hope, those things to return because you're aware that it's part of the process and you're not sort of giving up or you're not looking for the fix. Um, I don't know about you, but I would assume that with your friend who you were deeply connected with, just like I am with the people that I've lost, that I, I know just from being a sensible guy that there's not going to be a day where I'm like, yeah, I'm good with that. You know, I'm good with my brother's cancer, my father's suicide, my friend dying suddenly in, you know, an accident. Like, I don't think that day is coming. And so it's not that I've made peace with losing them so much as making peace with the idea that this is going to be an everyday process. And, and it's not something that I can fix or get rid of. Um, so kind of making you know, the guest room up and knowing that that's something I'm going to live with is something that for my own survival has just become essential. Mm. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the most challenging piece for, for anybody going through grief. And I know my, myself included, because a, a lot of life is acceptance, the things that we can and cannot control and stripping those two things down. Because I think when we're able to put them in their buckets, if you will, we are able to move through life um, a lot happier, a lot at, at, at peace. And that was the biggest struggle for me was the acceptance piece, because you have the fact that the event happened mm. and that someone's there and now they're not. And for your mind to process and understand how is that a possibility is very, very challenging. So then you have all of these emotions becoming layered on top of themselves that you've got to dig your way down to figure out at the core. Well, that is the reality. That mm -hmm. That's where we're at. So how do I look at the things that I can control in being able to handle life, live life again, accept the fact that these things have happened? And how do I process and handle all of these emotions? And to your point, I love that you said you know, it's not something you you fix or that you just one day you get over or you put it in a box. And I think as humans, we are, you know, I, I knew it, I'm not old, but in my younger years, people would say, man, you're like, Scott, you're like Bob the Builder. You always want to fix things. And mm -hmm. I was very, very guilty of that going through the grief and those challenges because I wanted to fix these emotions pouring in every so often. And it was a long time to really understand that it's not a matter of fixing them. It's a matter of actually listening to what these emotions are saying and truly experiencing them and accepting them rather than trying to battle them and push them away because that Delta only gets bigger and bigger. And then the tension becomes greater and greater. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting that you say that too, because you know, I always say the only way I can approach this work or even kind of show back up as an advocate or a spokesperson or as an author is like, I have to be true to myself, which is equal parts, find the funny and honor the journey, because mm -hmm. otherwise this just really wouldn't be fun. It would just be heavy all the time. Right. And that contrast 
like you're saying, is so important to be able to be a part of that. But, you know, we really are, especially with death, obsessed as a culture with putting it in boxes. And like, and I mean that literally, like when I look back at those experiences, it's, it's like, a, it's about deciding like which box literally the death is going to go in like an urn or a coffin. And then that box has to go in another box that goes away. And then it comes like, there's all these stages where it's about putting all their things in boxes. And, you know, like, it's like all packing it away and, and putting it somewhere neat where that's where, that's where the grief, grief and the death lives. And I never had a real relationship with the cemetery. Other members of my family did. I just like didn't. And I think it's because I always traveled so much. I had moved to Los Angeles that like I couldn't come to peace with the idea that, that I could only speak to my brother in a park in my hometown in Canada, because that would mean that I was agreeing that 98% of the time I would have no access to that connection. Right. So I kind of had to let go of that. But but you do notice like how our minds just naturally want to do that and it's so cool that you are bringing this up because I just got like the advanced audible of this new book called The Grieving Brain I don't know if you've heard of it Um, it's coming out it's by Mary Frances O'Connor the book's not out but I've just been so excited because you know I spent 13 years in the grief club I'm showing back up as a fear uh, as a peer not a fear (laughs) Um, as a peer you know um, and just trying to you know, encourage people to stay curious and compassionate and kind as they sort of experiment within their grief. And, you know, I I say constantly, like, I'm in grief club, too. I'm just the guy across the way that's, you know, been at the gym a little bit longer. And, you know, if if there's something about, you know, looking into my life that makes you kind of want to know what I went through, then I'm here. And this is sort of my offering back. And it happened today, as you started talking, like, I freeze when someone starts to tell me what I know is going to be a story about, you know, their loss story or their death story, especially if it's going to be tragic or sudden. And, you know, for so long, people would look to me, they call me, they say, well, like, what do I do? This person's going through this, or I just lost someone. Like, if anyone knows it's you. And I would just freeze because I just, I couldn't put words around it, but I knew that process of going from like when you find out to when you're sort of surrounded and hopefully in privilege supported, you know, by community and flowers and condolences and casseroles and you know that that whole stage and then there's this whole other stage which is exactly what you brought up where your brain is trying to process what you've always known and what makes sense to you and what reality is and in this book I you know I only just started the first chapter but it's the first time where like I'm almost glad this book came out after my book because I feel like it's the science that backs it up. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so you would love it. And cause I, I have that same thing where like, you know, I feel into things, but at a certain point I, I want the mindset, I want the science. I want, you know, that part of it to like feed the other side of me that, you know, really believes in things. But she kind of described it as like that we, that we brain map. And the example was so strong for me this morning, but it was like, if I asked you right now where, you know, one of your siblings was or where your kids are or your loved one or your parents without, you know, going into alarm, you'd be like at school, at their house in Canada, you know, like you, you have this brain map of where, you know, everyone you love is, you know, it's like, well, if they're not at school, then they're playing at their friend's house or, you know, we have this, this natural thing, but that map is kind of set up for us and we do it with food and water so that we know like, you know, how we can survive and love is part of that survival. And so we have these brain maps and then there's actually this dissonance where that brain map takes so long to rewire of, you know, me going where my dad, Oh, he's at home. 
okay, but reality, he's not at home. And it takes so long to go, you know, and we have those moments when we go to text someone, when we go to call someone, you know, it's our brain map has them where they were for that access to love and that connection that we only have with them. And then we have to sort of break our brains to come to the understanding that like, that's not reality. And they did all these experiments. It's really cool, like with rats and, and different mammals of like how they, how they literally map out their lives based on survival and how we do that too, you know? And so you don't realize, but multiple times in a day, you're probably going, wait, is my mom okay? Or is so-and-so okay? And then your brain is going into that brain map and being like, yeah, she's either at work or she's at home. She's safe. She's fine. If you need access to her, you can get it. And then grief is like this process of going like, wait, no, they were always there and they're not there. And she, she also used this example of, you know, we all go to restaurants all the time. Well, imagine if one time you went to the restaurant, the waiter came, they took their, your order, and then they just never brought the food. <laughs> And your brain is just constantly trying to go, no, 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 no. I've been here a hundred times. I order, they bring food. My need for food is, is taken care of. Like that's how it works. And I can see you nodding because it's like, I'm literally getting goosebumps because that's how my brain worked for so long. No, my dad was always there. I could call this number. I could go to this house. Like I know where he is. And my brain was going, no, no, no. And like, you know, it's not easy to be compassionate and loving and kind when you kind of feel like you're teaching yourself something so obvious, you know, mm -hmm. and you really have to be willing to experiment in that and, and, and work within your mindset of like, what will really serve you. And that's why like everything I put in the book, it's sort of these I stayed with them for the first seven days of loss and then for the first year. And they're just offerings, unconditional offerings, because I know better than anyone, if something doesn't work for you, if you don't learn something from awareness that can lead to action, then throw it away because our grief processes are so individual and, you know, so special to us. And, and that's why I just for so long froze because I know that your relationship with your friend is not the same as my relationship with my father, even if it's the same, you know, dying of suicide or someone who loses a brother to cancer, even if it's the same ages, the same relationship, it's just not the same, you know, what's been lost in the connection that's there. So it's kind of this really inherently lonely thing that we all go through. And so there's, there's a disconnect there. And I just, everything I've ever done from, you know, the nonprofit organization for brain tumor families to the mental health startup for men to the book now is kind of this, this crazy idea I always have around building community around things that feel so lonely, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, I wish it was for better reasons, but it's a little bit selfish in that because, you know, it's just so isolating sometimes to have these very human experiences that apparently everybody has. And then there's not this sense of community around experiencing them. And, you know, like we talked about in the beginning, that leads to me staying up at night, which means to some sort of action, mm -hmm. you know, of how, how can I show up to that? But I will admit that this book and this offering, it took me a long time because there was a very personal, private, individual process of what we're talking about, of, of coming to even make sense of how in a 10 year span in my twenties, how all of this could even have happened, you know, yeah. during the normal time of being in your 20s and what I call like micro grief processes, which is not a measurement of size, just 
like saying, I say in the book, like you'd have to take a microscope to acknowledge them because my friends, I could see them all going through these. It wasn't a physical death, but the losses of things that were meaningful, the losses of how they thought life was going to go, the job they thought they were going to get, the girlfriend they thought they were going to marry, the, you know, all these, all these things. Um, I was still having all of those while having these very public, you know, tangible grief processes resulting from physical deaths from, from within my immediate family and, and close friend. So it was like one of those things where everyone was watching, but no one gets it. And, you know, it, it was just this, this weird disconnect of something that was so known, but unknown at all times. And it, it just really took me a long time. And of course I spent a lot of time focusing just on my own mental health. You know, if I was going to show up or when I was going to show up, I wanted to make sure it was in a sustainable way. Mm -hmm. um, so um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so individual, but I do hope to kind of, at least in having the conversation, people say like, people are like, why are you smiling? Like when you started to tell your story and you started to explain how you were feeling, like, why are you smiling as I'm saying this, like, you know, tragic story of, of grief. And in a way, it's just because these conversations, I really feel like weren't happening 10 years ago and the mm -hmm. mental health that gets intertwined in grief. And, and so there is a part of me that smiles and goes like, okay, good. It's not just me. You know, this is something we all experience. It's like, it is the return on investment of connection. Like I always say that, like, um, that is the return on investment of being willing to connect. You will one day grieve. So why are we not sort of not getting ahead of it? Cause I don't think you can ever really prepare, but you know, when it does happen, why is it sort of, so hard to talk about and so hard to explain and and why is it so hard to acknowledge and honor somebody else's grief without feeling worthless because you can't fix it like mm -hmm. there's this need to like over condolence and like if I can't fix you then maybe we shouldn't talk about it because I'm not being helpful and there's this beautiful thing of what you're doing right now which is just engaging nodding and you know acknowledging my experience after I've just acknowledged yours and we're not going to fix each other today but we are going to dissipate and make sense of things you know from mm -hmm. from experiencing it and being you know I wish in the same room but digitally mm -hmm. uh, in the pandemic possible world mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah there's some interesting parallels that I've noticed too as well so back to this this brain mapping so I think mm -hmm. Harvard did a study this was maybe back in the early to mid nineties and they had a, a, a two-way mirror and they were giving instructions to the individual sitting in the room and they would say, all right, I want you for the next 25 seconds, whatever the time was to just spit out anything that comes to mind right now. And so she was looking around the room. She's like, Oh, I like the color blue. And so it was just extremely random. It's very amazing how many thoughts our brain has mm -hmm. every second of every single day. And then they stop the timer. She gives another set of instructions as a professor from Harvard. Now I want you to do the same thing. There's a bell to the right of you. And I want you, I'm, I don't want you to think about polar bears. Don't try not to think about a white polar bear. And <laughs> I want you to articulate out loud all of the things that are going on in your mind again. But each time a white polar bear comes up, I want you to ring that bell. And she probably had hit that bell. Oh, my gosh. Within a minute, 25 to 35 times, because the harder we tell our minds, 
not to think of something, the more we think of something. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a, a huge reality or was a huge reality for me around grief and loss was telling myself, oh, don't think about it. It's a pass. And that just kept on going and going and compounding instead of accepting it. And we have this this habit, not only putting things in a box, but thinking that we're just going to push things under mm-hmm. a rug. And eventually that rug mound gets so high that we end up tripping over and slam our jaw into the floor. And I think it's very interesting when we learn to lean into some of those things and just actually cry and become emotional. And, you know, I was brought up in a very old school household, love my dad to death, of course, but very uh, ex-military guy. And there wasn't much of emotional conversation between him and I when I was a, a kid. So there was not a lot for me to grasp onto around emotion or um, walking through these emotions or articulating them out loud or being with someone to experience those emotions, right? So back to your point about being very lonely. And I know something that you talk about and I fucking love is this piece around masculinity and this idea that we've we've built or that we've kind of twined into the fabric of society around being a man and being macho and not going through these emotions and because it's weak or it's a sign of of weakness and all of these other things. And I love that you're you're putting this conversation out into the atmosphere because I have a lot of friends, um, whether you know ex-military, where whatever, that it is very challenging f- for them to speak or express their emotions. They're mm-hmm. very flatlined through life, and it's because. And I've had I've tried to have some of those conversations with them because I think it's very healing for people and a great experience to lean into that. Um, Once we go to that place, I could tell that they actually enjoy getting it off their chest and they're like, wow, I've been so isolated. And and how I put this, and again, I'm I'm sure Edison, I'm preaching to the, the choir, but we weave these bars of our cell ourselves right? Mm. So we, we get to control what type of metal we use. And we always pick titanium, the, the, I don't know if that's actually the strongest metal, but, um, and we put ourselves in a cell and then throw the fucking key in our pocket. And I don't want to certainly oversimplify this, of course, but it's a matter of reaching in our pocket and grabbing the key. We have the key, mm-hmm. we know where the, the, the lock is, and we know where the handle is to open up that door. And, I love that you are going down this this path of breaking this stigma around specifically men and this macho masculinity piece. And it's like, okay, there's, there's nothing wrong with crying. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with expressing emotions. There's nothing wrong with sharing them. And it's very interesting. I watched some of your previous um, interviews and doing some research here. It was It's very interesting watching even though grief is so unique to each person, there's a lot of bridges in between Mm -hmm. each of those islands and watching each of these guys express and share some of their grief or share in, um, in tether, you guys had that spot, the the pods down at the, and I was going through some of the interviews Mm -hmm. and while they're very unique on their own, I think there's three of them on there. 
there's a lot of similarities and it's around actually sharing and being vulnerable. And this, this vulnerability piece we need to make, it needs to become more common. Being vulnerable is not a bad thing at all. And I feel if in society, more of us were more vulnerable, people would feel more human. And dare I use the word normal because it's almost, Mm -hmm. oh, it's not normal to, to be vulnerable or experience emotions. Like, no, that's, that's literally life. That's, that's what we do every (laughs) single day. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly, exactly right. So I love that this has become more of a conversation. I'd love to hear just some of your experience walking, creating, creating this app tether that you guys Mm -hmm. have, I think is fucking amazing. Um, I love the idea. I love the community, which you just spoke on behalf of, but I'd love to hear just kind of the impact and some of the stuff that you've experienced behind that over the, over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I will just say like what we're really like kind of, you know, went off in my head when, as you were saying that is like, it is like the entrance and exit of perfectionism. It's like, even if you get to that point where you're willing, it's like, you spend all this time trying to be like a perfect man. And I grew up with like badass, loving, emotionally literate parents who encouraged that in me. And I still went out there and and maybe I didn't use like intense, like machoism or like, you know, peacocking to do it, but I definitely used overachieving. I definitely used success. I definitely used sexuality, you know, as like a measure of like manlyhood. And it's, it's so weird because you, you have this moment where you're going, okay, I'm trying to be a perfect man. I need to let go of that. And then you're willing to sort of maybe step into your grief or your mental health. And then it's like 10 seconds later, you're going back into perfection mode about that. Mm-hmm. And, and perfection doesn't work. You know, like you said, titanium doesn't work for real life. Like t- I, 10 years ago. Yeah. I would have picked the strong, whatever the strongest metal is on the periodic table, you know, and like, if I knew what was coming, you know, I'm going to pick that one. But now looking back, like, you know, I would definitely go to something more pliable, something, you know, with flexibility, because it's, it's in that it's in that every day. And like, obviously like, you know, the queen that Brene Brown is, but like the, the gifts of imperfection and, and getting into vulnerability you know, vulnerability is so wrapped up in courage and that gets missed so much in the male mental health conversation. And it's this, the weirdest thing I, 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 I feel confident in saying that I have interviewed, sat with, connected with, talked to, listened to sessions, you know, when I, when I did tether for, for two years, you know, building that startup, you know, I, it was just universal over and over again that once the safe space was established, once that vulnerability happened, then there was so much of a release and they were living such better lives. But then there was this tendency to like either, you know, retract back from that, or that's the only space I can do that in. And it's like sort of this thing where I'm like, you know, even if you're learning it, you know, even if you're not learning at home, you're learning it somewhere, you keep picking this thing up. And, and I think there's just, there's this confusion around, you know, the difference, like you were saying, between, you know, vulnerability and courage, and they're actually quite intertwined, and resilience and strength. I really, I've really tried with everything that I've been through and between the grief and the mental health challenges to focus on resilience, not strength, because it's just a very different mindset. You know, you, you have to be flexible in a certain way. It's not about like, you know, being this, you know, 300 Spartan shields, <laughs> you know, like to keep everything out. It's actually about managing man in a manageable way, letting everything in. And I love what you said, like, you know, it's like, we're trying to put it away. We're trying to put it away. And I used to have this belief, 
you know, two very limited beliefs to this day that I, I'm still trying to, you know, you teach people how to treat you as my coach always would say, and I'm still trying to unteach people this, but I always believed if people hugged me that I would fall apart. So there became this thing around me where people would forewarn people, Addison doesn't like to be touched. Addison doesn't like to be hugged. And like for someone who needed nothing but love, nothing but oxytocin and such a struggle and time of my life, I, I was so afraid that if I really got it though, what would happen? I was also afraid if I was too nice to my mom, she would die. Like there's just these like, you know, these things that come up. But if I go into that grief feeling right now, I'm not going to be able to work. I'm not going to be able to do what's expected of me. I'm not going to be a strong brother. I'm not going to be a patriarch in my family. You know, whatever it was, I had these beliefs. And then the more that I challenged that and more out of, you know, it's not out of badass courage. It just was out of necessity that eventually because of how these things compounded, I did have to dip into them, whether I liked it or not. And I did have to sit in them, like literally, like I was at a point where I couldn't walk. So I like, I literally had to sit in all of this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, You know, that's when I really started to realize, oh, like if you go into that for a minute, if you feel that sadness, if you acknowledge it, it doesn't turn into losing the whole day. It and it actually turns into that happening less frequently because if it builds up, it gets much harder. And and so I think that, you know, for anybody listening, especially in the men's mental health conversation, one thing I open-heartedly always acknowledge is that as courageous as it might seem for me to talk about my mental health and my grief, I had these movie-like moments, these tangible deaths that everyone understands what that is and what's happening. And they expect me to grieve or there to be some sort of fallout. But I know that every man, every person, everyone out there, you know, both, you know, men or the LGBTQ community, there's so much there in these statistics around, you know, suicidality and and just the the threat of mental health in these, in these two communities. And I've just really, really looked at that so much, but, you know, it's so much harder to acknowledge what everybody can't see. And what, what I called earlier, those micro grief processes, and what's going on, you know, where it's not obvious that someone might be feeling that way. And I just want to say that because it's, it's much harder to stop, pause, acknowledge, ask for what you need, take care of yourself, you know, convince yourself that you're worthy of a mental health day, you know, whatever it is, you know, talk with a boss or, or anybody about something that's not obvious. You know, if you look at the way bereavement is handled, even, I mean, some places are still only given two days and that's when it is an obvious tangible grief process of somebody going through something. So like, imagine all the invisible ones and there's so much there. And so I just, you know, it's little by little. And again, the same as what I say with grief is what I'll say with mental health is, is just, you know, we don't, we just forget to remind ourselves to be so compassionate and curious in a healthy way about it. What happens if I, you know, look at it this way. What happens if I ask for help at this moment? What happens if I address this when it's out of two out of 10 instead of a nine out of 10, you know, being a part of that processing and acknowledging that along the way. And it's all just these baby steps. And like I said, it's all your own experimenting in all of this. So you'll either find something that really serves you as you experiment when these feelings come up, or you won't. But either way, you're better off because you're gaining this emotional literacy with very little, you know, fear of exposure, if that's the fear. I think there there are very manageable ways. And, you know, this is all every day. This is all, um, you know, coming from a peer. I just always want to say that, like, I'm not a mental health professional. This is like me saying the same way you'd ask somebody who you think their body looks great at the gym. What? 
you know, people look at me and they're like, wait, you laugh a lot. You're very hopeful. You're always talking about gratitude. You seem so deeply connected with so many people, which makes no sense because you should be afraid of connection because people die and that's terrifying. You know, like I have, and I think the wild thing about me that I'm learning from doing this sort of book tour is not that these deaths happened and not that I was just to the left of death over the last 10 years so intimately and so closely. The wild part is how I've shown back up and how there's a willingness to love and be loved, how there's a willingness to connect and be connected with and, and fail and be flawed and fully human and approach life from excellence, not perfection. Like that's what's actually wild. You know, my story might be more movie-like if, you know, I just, you know, went into a downward spiral and had an addiction and you know what I mean? But, but it is quite wild with how harshly I've learned, you know, how final losing somebody can be you know there was parts of me that definitely wanted to disconnect fully you know and didn't want to share anything and and also I felt like you know I don't know how many listeners you have under 18 but I never want to ruin this in case mom and dad are listening but there's a certain someone that comes once a year and you know we have to deal with when that's not real anymore Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to be that guy where I'm like that's not all kids guess what you know (laughs) there's all this stuff that's going to happen to you that no one is talking about. You know, we talk about the teeth and the bunny and the, the man who comes once a year, but we, we don't talk about how like we're going to have to grapple with like challenging, horrible losses, you know, mm. and it's all relative. It doesn't have to be the things I've gone through, you know, your loss is your loss and it's relative to your experience. So all of this applies either way, but you know, that's, that's, that's a hard lesson to learn and it's a hard walk to take yourself on it. But if you, if you do those steps at a time, I do think that it's a lot more manageable. And, and I, I will say that of those thousands of men to get back to that, I, I don't think there was ever one that when they decided to show up to their mental health, I never had anyone come back and say, you know what guys, this was a really bad idea. It didn't serve me in any way. And I would have taken it very seriously if I had, but it's actually, as I'm saying this, I'm kind of in shock, but like, I, you know, no one ever came back and said, you know, this wasn't healthy, actually. I should have kept everything locked away and stayed a man. Yeah. You know, it's a lot harder to cry than not cry sometimes, you know, there's, there's that. Well, I feel like too, it's, it's kind of like, Many people going to the gym, you pull up to the gym. I know you've brought that up a couple of times. You go, you know, fuck, I got to work out or I should work out or I got to do this. But by the time you get back in your car, you're like, wow, endorphins released. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel great right now. I'm so glad I did that. And I think that physical activity is very similar. There is such a parallel to mental exercise, right? And putting ourselves through those reps of life. And just like fear causes this fight or flight mode and many people run away from it, our emotions are telling us things. They're our body's way of signaling, hey, we should pay attention to this. We should look into this more. And I think many of us run away from it. And what that does is it doesn't allow us to get reps in. So every single time we experience a similar event or someone that we love or someone that we're close to is going through that thing. Well, of course, then it becomes very challenging to accept or listen or to be empathetic to that individual because 
historically we've ran away from dealing with it ourselves. So how do we sit in a room with someone else experiencing those things? And I think I know for me, and I certainly don't want to speak for the listeners, but I'm sure a lot of other people, it's, it's the same thing, you know, when talking to a friend, as I go through it, it's almost like, I, I don't know what to do here. And I think that there's this F word that pops up all the time. And it's this fixing, it's not about mm-hmm. fixing anything. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just about sitting and listening. And I used to have a really bad habit of this. And I've told my listeners this, but even with my girlfriend, when she would, we have this exercise now, if she has a bad day, or she's gone through something traumatic, she's in healthcare and deals with older individuals. So her job is very very much around the world of death every single day. And I used to have a habit of trying to come into the conversation and give her suggestions because of what I do for a living. I I, I want to, the first place I go to naturally is to lead and to want to support and try to fix Mm -hmm. things. And what we have finally, the, the place that we came to, which I love and it's so beautiful is who do you need me to be in this moment? Do you, need me to be someone that just listens or are you actually looking for um, advice or recommendations or direction here? Mm. And that way we're able to get the signals that are bouncing around in her head out loud. So that way what she needs, I understand clearly Mm -hmm. and then we can proceed forward. And so it's very interesting, the similarities between those, those two worlds. Yeah. I think that brings up a huge point. I think I just want to say that just in case anyone missed that, but I do believe whether it's grief, mental health, whether you're a man who struggles with this or anybody that asking what does support look like for you in this moment, like asking that question unlocks so much and it just allows you to be there with somebody. And I feel like part of the reason why we don't emote part of the reason we shut down is because we don't want to invite others to do it and then we don't know how to help them we don't know how to fix them and we're supposed to be breadwinners and supporters and fixers you know I saw that mentality a lot in all of my work in in men's mental health but with everyone I mean mothers go through that so many people you know there's this idea and I do it all the time where you know I shut it down so that nobody else will open up because I don't want to be in a situation where I can't help someone else. And that's where asking it's, it's, it's also disarming, like, because they have to really think about also what they need and take on the responsibility of what, of what they're going through. But just asking, because for me personally, so many times the answer is just listening. Like advice is usually not what I want. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just because because I also look at life through a different filter and with a different mindset and see people with a lot more empathy than the average person. I don't want you to get on board and hate the person that has in some way brushed up against me. Like that's not going to help me or serve me, you know, but I I just need to think about this out loud or a lot of the times, which I never felt like I could say. And I realized in retrospect of, of who, you know, which of my closest friends that I always kind of wanted to be around. And when my mental health was striking up, was like, I just wanted someone to be there, but not talk. Like that was so powerful, just hold the space. And like, there were certain people, so I would pick non-talkative people, you know, and be like, why? And, you know, these other people in my life are going to be like, well, you know, like, how come you always want to spend time with him? Like one of my childhood best friends, it's like, all we ever really did was watch TV and be quiet, but we spent a lot of time together. And that was just so valuable to both of us in our grief processes to not be alone, but also not like going down and, you know, unraveling around it like I just think that that's that's such a huge part of it and it's so undervalued like just asking 
you know, acknowledging and then asking. So with that in mind, like, what does support look like for you right now? And mm-hmm. you know, I said it to my sister like a couple of weeks ago. I don't know how I've never said it before, but I guess I just haven't, you know, and she started laughing hysterically. Like it was so disarming to be like, you know, she was explaining a stressful situation. I said, okay, well, you know, how can I support you in this moment? What, is, what does support look like? you know, for this, because I can't fix any of the things, obviously, that you just brought up. These are big life things and their processes. And it, and it really, in, in just such a beautiful way, like, you know, let her pause for a moment and really consider also what was possible in that moment, as far as what's, what I could provide. It's just the expectations on both sides can be so dangerous. Mm. And I think, again, it's not out of like, I don't know, any badass courage that I came to these conclusions is that, you know, when you've been through stuff or you're a mental health advocate or whatever, people seem to think that you're going to be able to help them or fix things. And I had to, you know, bring that up very early. Otherwise, I would be in these situations where it's like, wow, I'm trying to fix myself, everybody else, you know, and it's, and, and, and because I'm doing it, I'm somehow inherently expecting that others can and will do it for me. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of this trap, you mm-hmm. know, whatever, whatever you think is possible for someone else, that's the number one lesson I've learned, like in my mindset training and, and, and living, because so much of it is also once you're finished reading the books, once you're finished with the coaching, getting in the lab and applying it to real life and seeing what serves you, that is the number one resounding thing is that anything that you put on someone else has to apply for you as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking this person did this and now they're undeserving of love or this is unhealthy and so blank, you know, whatever that is somewhere inherently, you believe that about yourself, that there's one thing you can do that you're no longer worthy, that there's one thing that you can do that everyone should cancel you. And God, don't get me started on cancel culture. But, you know, (laughs) it's like if you don't live in the experience where we can all make amends with integrity and you believe that truthfully for everyone around you, there's something there that you're not believing it for you. And that's a very hard way to live. And I'm just without anyone else involved, just you and you at the end of the day, it's just you looking at you and dealing with that relationship. And that becomes so true in grief because no one fully understands the experience. You're the expert of your experience. So, you know, we have to let the people around us know from being the expert of our experiences when it comes to mental health or grief, what they can and can't do to support us Mm -hmm. and, you know, be loving in those exchanges because, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone's just going to be learning and, and, you know, kind of honoring in the hopes that things will dissipate and they can reapproach them with like, you know, a little bit more love and a little bit more grace and integrity the next time around. Um, that's all I ask for people of me. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's no way anyone's going to fix what's happened or, you know, fully be able to just tune me up. And that goes for mental health professionals as well. I mean, they're also people, they have all more tools and, you know, they're there for you in times of crisis, but in every day, this expectation that if I just go to this place and I will be fixed eventually, I think it has to go. Mm. I, I just don't think it's serving anyone, especially men. Um, you know, because like I said in the beginning, there's a lot of awareness around how it's okay for us to have feelings. And I think that was so necessary. And also so five years ago, because if we don't follow up right away with actionable tools that men can actually use, that they can go to that serve them in their everyday lives and help them with their mental health and grief processes, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the suicide rate is going up, you know, that like for men, especially. So it's, it's gotta be quickly followed 
Um, you know, I say this to all the advocates, I say this to any organizations that I try to work with or partner with, I love the campaigns for emotion, you know, it's okay to be emotional, it's okay to have feelings, it's okay, you're not okay, but we got to follow quickly behind with some serious, actionable tools that people can use and get their hands on and their minds around. Um, otherwise, I just truly don't see how these numbers will dissipate, you know, and that's that's going to take iterating and it's going to take bravery on every side of the equation. But I, I do think we've come a long way. And I think it's it's so amazing that I can feel comfortable saying, OK, we, awareness is being covered on multiple fronts. We got to look at action because awareness wasn't even existed. Like, you know, like I said, when my dad went through what he went through and we lost him to suicide. I mean, this was just not even being talked about. Mm-hmm. I think there, there was even still like the air of conversations around whether or not we would tell everybody that's what happened. You know, that, I mean, that's where we were 10 years ago, you know, out of respect for him. I think, you know, the theme of today's conversation is there could be nothing more respectful than to honor that somebody has died of suicide. And that is the way I say it that now like, I try not to say take your life or commit suicide or, you know, that's one thing I picked up along the way. You die of suicide. You know, mm-hmm. there, there becomes a disconnect there that we're not that we can't put words around because we've never been there, you know, mm. fully. And, and there's something that happens there. And, and unfortunately we don't get to speak to people, you know, after, um, except for the ones that survive and almost all of them, you know, have these immediate regrets, like my friend, Kevin Hines, who talks about it all the time. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's just, it's just something we have to be so careful with. And I think words have a lot of power and, you know, I think just honoring the full picture of that, you know, and and not taking on responsibility, but just honoring that because what I inherited from my dad was the absolute necessity of taking care of my own mental health, becoming educated in mental health, you know, encouraging others around me to do that, you know, and it's not from a place of if I had known this then, I don't think that I, I could have changed anything. And I was very right there. You know, it's um, it, it is what it is. And, and that's that's been, you know, like I said, like a 10 year process of of I don't I don't even still like to use the word acceptance, but I am aware that that is what has happened. And like I said, I wake up every morning and I honor the relationship I have with that awareness every mm. day. And that's that's all I can commit to. And, you know, I I don't know, maybe I you my keynotes are a lot more real. They're not like if you do these five things, you will not be upset anymore that you've lost someone. I I, I don't think there's a list or a retreat or a flash sale for this. I think it's you know the best thing we can do is get out there and say, you know, hey, this is a lifelong process. And the the quicker we get to honoring these processes and, you know, even acknowledging them, um, the sooner we're on our way to having, you know, more limitless possibilities within just our everyday lives. I, I love that you mentioned that it's not like this, this guide, because this is what I talk about a lot on this podcast is I give a lot of one, you know, through four, one through five, one through 10. But when it comes to grief and that stuff, first of all, I try to stick to my lane. Um, that's, that's number one. Um, but I love what you're doing. I think you're an amazing person. What you're going out there and talking about the action piece, I think is, is amazing. First year of grief club. Where can we find this book? Um, so you just, 
you just released this. You're on tour right now mm-hmm. for this book, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, where can we find uh, it? It is, it is on Amazon worldwide. It's it's very simple. Um, you can also go to mygriefclub.com. Um, and I'm just my name on socials, Addison Brazil. Brazil, like the country, spelled with an S, as my dad would say, um, which is how they actually spell it in Brazil. Um, <laughs> so we always have to say that, but yeah. it, it is technically just the way they spell it. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's that's where I'm at. And, and I am... Um, I am approachable. I like I hesitated there because there has been a big reaction to the book and I do get a lot of messages. So I do I do try to thoughtfully respond. And mm-hmm. and I will say that, like my definition of grief, this book is meant to be a living, breathing thing. It's meant to be volumed. So I do want feedback. I do want to know what experiments in it do and don't work. And if there's offerings back to me, you know, because it, it, again, it came out of a place of, you know, wanting to fill the freeze and, and wanting to create something that people could gift to someone other than, you know, flowers or food or you know, just condolences and cards. And, you know, I, I just try to create something that, that will still be there when all those things fade away, you know, when the silence hits and the swirl of grief hits and, and you can kind of, this is the way that you could stay with somebody for a year. Um, And also selfishly to relieve myself of, you know, well, let me talk to them for a second on the phone. You know, now I can say here, this is this, this, here, this is what I think. This is all the things I think about grief and after what I've been through and, and it's if you can't be the friend who gets it, I am I'm happy to be and and you can let them know that doesn't mean I claim to know anything about their experience, just that, you know, the casseroles and condolences are, are only the beginning and I'm well aware of that. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into why we need to start honoring our grief with Addison Brazil. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at the motivated underscore mind and on Facebook at the motivated mind podcast. Don't forget to join me every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. I love you all and thanks so much for listening. The Motivated Mind is a legacy division.